On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Mike DeSalvo of DeSalvo Custom Cycles in Ashland, Oregon. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone and I have a conversation with somebody in the frame building world that's usually a frame builder and we talk for an hour, it's pretty casual, about you know how they got started with frame building and uh, you know w- what that process looked like. We talk about process and technique. And I really like to talk some about like, you know, values and ideas and like why we build things the way we do and how we, you know, sort of um, position our businesses and serve our customers and differentiate ourselves. And, you know, some people wouldn't imagine spending time on this process or detail and other people would be happy to. Uh, And I I think these different perspectives are really cool. So I try and talk about that stuff some. And um yeah, it's just a celebration of frame building and a reason for me to get to know all these different people that I admire uh, better. And so this week, my guest is Mike DeSalvo, Ashland, Oregon. Uh, he builds steel and titanium bikes, and uh, he's been doing so since, I think, the late 90s, early 2000s. And um, he got started uh, at UBI. And so I didn't cover his backstory too much because there's a really good episode of The Pull podcast that he was on not too long ago that covers a lot of those basic things. And so uh, I wanted to expand without covering too much of the same stuff. Basically, uh, he was a bike mechanic in and out of the bike bike shops and bike industry for a long time. He had done some stuff at UBI, and then he ended up back at UBI again in the late 90s, learned how to uh, do f- some frame building while he was teaching mechanics courses, and then ended up teaching uh, frame building for quite a long time uh, at UBI. And so um, we talk some about, you know, what teaching was like and those things. Uh, His bikes are really, you know, they're they're all diamond frame bikes. There's nothing super whimsical. They're pretty straightforward. And uh, Mike will tell you that, you know, he he doesn't want to make anything that uh, that won't be sustainable for him. And he knows what his wheelhouse is. And so we get into that some. And uh, I really admire his work. And I had a lot of fun uh, talking to him. I didn't know his history too well, so I got to study up some for this one. It was a lot of fun for me to do this call. And so uh, I also want to give a quick recap about the Philly Bike Expo uh, while it's all fresh in my mind. So I live in Syracuse, New York, and on Thursday, uh, right before the Philly Bike Show, I drove you know four or five hours to get to Philadelphia, and I've been here the past couple days and um, it's been amazing. I suggest to anyone who's interested in bike frame building in any capacity, you got to come to shows like this, especially the Philly show is a blast. Um, I think it has a different dynamic than some other shows, but any of the, any of the shows where, you know, frame builders are meeting up are definitely worth going to like the Dallas uh, NABs show, North American handmade bike show. That'll be in March, I think this year. Um, It will be a similar dynamic. What's one thing that's really cool about the Philly show is it's in the same city every year. And there's a handful of frame builders here. And so Friday night, after everybody loads in at the show, 
there will be the vendor bender party at Firth and Wilson Transport Cycles. And so uh, that's a freaking cool party. There's a ton of cool and interesting people there, including there's a frame building shop in the back. So it's like a retail bike shop that sells, you know, commuter bikes and different bicycles. And then in the back, there's like a, a saddle repair uh, area that, you know, Simon does uh, Brooks saddle repairs. And then there's a bunch of frame building equipment and machine tools. And uh, my friend Tom, Tom LaMarche, uh, he has a part of that shop and it's really cool. And um, there's just a lot of cool stuff going on. Friday night party is a total blast. The show is Saturday and Sunday, and there's a ton of really cool frame builders, but there's just a ton of cool seminars and stuff going on. And I know I've been talking about the Philly Bike Expo for months, but I just want to emphasize that the reason that I think that this show is so valuable for people who are interested in frame building and stuff isn't just the business component of it. Like, oh, I could get a booth and then I will have greater awareness about my stuff which is really cool and, and is like valuable in its own right. But I think the reason is that you will meet some of the coolest people who share your interests. You will make some really good friends. And I think that that is like one of the coolest and most valuable things that you could ever get out of like a little trip or a little vacation that you could take. And then you might also get some sort of uh, business benefit for doing it. But I have met some of the best friends that I've had uh, at different shows like this and different open houses and different like, it's amazing. Uh, you meet the coolest people who share your weird, specific frame building interest. Nobody in your daily life cares or gives a crap about it. But like when you go to these shows, you're going to meet people. I got to tour a bunch of different shops. I'm going to do some shop tours uh, tomorrow before I leave for my YouTube channel. I'm trying to get three. I'm trying to do one at the Engine Cycles shop, the Belinky Cycle Works shop, and at the Transport Cycles shop. Hopefully I get all three of those recorded and I can release those soon to share some of that. But I can't emphasize enough, uh, don't come like Friday night for the show and then leave Sunday night. Uh, you're, you're shorting yourself, like uh, network with people and make the most of the experience. Try and, you know, it's exhausting because there's like something going on at all hours every day. But uh, these shows are amazing because the people uh, as much as or more than the bikes and the booths and the show floor. I feel like my favorite part about the expo doesn't even happen at the show floor. Uh, so anyway, I just wanted to emphasize that the show floor itself is awesome. Uh, Bina Belinky hosts a great show. There's a million cool things that go on. And also I will say that like standing in my booth all weekend and talking to people was really cool because all sorts of cool people walk up and introduce themselves. And a bunch of listeners of the podcast said, Hey, I appreciate the podcast. And it was really great. Um, so I'm going to stop yapping about the Philly Bike Expo, but definitely come next year if you possibly can. You won't regret it. And um, so where I'm cutting into the interview here with Mike, uh, I was just asking him, I was telling him that uh, one of the questions I had for him was like exactly verbatim the same as on the poll podcast that he had just done. And it was about, um, <laughs> it was about teaching and about how when you uh, have to teach something generally it's a common experience that as you teach it over and over again you learn a lot more about what you already knew or what you thought you knew yeah yeah no that's a i mean what it really did for me and i don't mean to come across in a bad way but when i first started being involved in the class i was a beginner myself and so it was one of the biggest things i think that it did for me was like being able to like watch other beginners and be like, oh, that's a good way of doing that. Or, oh, I would never have thought of doing it like that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or like, oh, that's a pretty awful mistake that person just made. Hopefully I won't have to make that mistake myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, learning through the mistakes so, of others, yeah. 
Yeah, 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 it was actually, and, and I'll tell you, a boy with TIG welding, too, I mean, I wouldn't be yeah. so good at filling holes if it wasn't for those classes, you know, because somebody, mm. you know, blows a hole the size of a nickel or something, and there's no, uh, you know, there's no, <laughs> there's no turning back at this point, we got to make this thing look like a bike, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know, like, uh, w- welding is this sort of continuum or spectrum, spectrum, I suppose, no, yeah, maybe it's a, con- uh-huh. a, a continuum doesn't have finite ends, it kind of goes on forever, and a spectrum has defined endpoints, I think is the difference, but anyway, uh, welding is just, there are people who are just infinitely worse than you, and infinitely better than you, no matter where you're at, there's always somebody better than you, and somebody worse than you, and so, um, Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm not anybody's expert, I'm no, you know, Brad Bingham, or Mike DeSalvo, or who, you know, but like, <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to be winning awards at NABs, but you know, if I sat down and welded bikes every day for a year or two, maybe I'd, maybe I'd be in, in the runnings or something. I don't know. But like, sure. but anyway, I can do all right. And I'm proud of, uh, some of the welds I've done look, look okay. And I think they're strong enough. And, and, you know, occasionally people would give me a compliment on that or something. And, um, you know, I'm no expert, but anyway, it's cool to show people. I still have pictures of like the very first TIG welds that I did if I dig them up and they are bad as you can imagine. <laughs> and I had like 4130 tubes. I didn't even sand off the mill scale. Didn't know you needed to, you know, like I had, Oh really? Yeah. they were thick. They were like 058 or 049, but I just had blown massive holes in them and just, you know, I didn't, I didn't even have an idea how I was going to hold them together for tacking and you know, I, I took uh-huh. a brazing uh, frame building class, not a welding one. And so I had, it was kind of interesting. I had a frame building, well, no, I, in, in college, there was a metal sculpture professor who rode endurance mountain bike. And I asked him if he'd give uh-huh. me an independent study after I had taken that frame building class. And he said, sure, but you're going to learn TIG welding. And he taught me, and he didn't sit down uh-huh. with me much, but he showed me how it works. And man, I, I blew a lot of holes in those tubes for a while. <laughs> can imagine, yeah. you know, the kind of learning you do in just the span of a week at UBI it's just completely different. Mm-hmm. Did you go to UBI? I didn't. No, I just took Doug Faddock's okay. class in 2010. Okay, okay. Well, I just, the only reason I asked is you said you took a class. I just wasn't sure if yeah. it was UBI or not. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, it's, and I, I mean, would, you're absolutely. I would love to take oh. some classes. You know, um, you know, it's always, it's busy when you have your own projects going and stuff. But I do think sure. um, the metal guru classes are super interesting to me. Um, mm-hmm. That is sort of a different spin on it. And then the UBI classes, of course, are like just sort of mm-hmm. a, a benchmark uh, that so many, you know, successful frame builders got started there and learned there. So <clears throat> I think that either one of those or both would be really cool if I could, uh, if I could make it happen to get out to those classes. Uh, I think it would do me a lot of good. Um, you yeah. know, for the networking and, and learning more about the stuff, you know, seeing the ways that other people do it just, you know, helps you design better stuff. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, that's been like a lifetime thing for me too. I mean, I went through that thing when I started, I think really where you, you learn a way to do it and you're like, Oh, this is how you have to do it. And then you start, the more that you start looking around, it's like, no, there's actually like hundreds of ways to do this. And, you know, my way works for me, but that way works for somebody else. And Hey, maybe I can actually even pick up something from them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely, I mean, absolutely. And I, you know, I don't know if you follow me on Instagram, I'm not very good on Instagram, but it's, it's, it's for some reason, you know, I started this when I was 26, I turned 47 this year and I don't think I, at that point, I doubt, I'm doubtful that you would have ever, somebody would have asked me, I was like, Oh yeah, I'll still be doing this in 20 years. And, you know, so it's a lot of reflection for me. It's like, 
you know, of course I would have thought I'd been a perfect welder in 20 years, or, you know, of course I would have thought there would be nothing left to learn in 20 (laughs) years, you know, (laughs) but uh, I've also, I think one of my, I don't know that it's a downfall, but one of my operating as a one-man band the entire time, you know, I, I always tell people, I mean, my time at the welder every week is probably maximum of three or four hours, mm-hmm. you know, so I don't get near the time on the welder that anybody who works in a production setting, you know, does. And I'm not saying that I would be as good as some of those production welders if I did, but, you know, I just don't get the practice that a lot of those guys and gals do. Um, so, you know, it, it really yeah. is just a different, you know, it's just a different different way of doing things. And I think, you know, because of that, I, I actually think that's one of the biggest shortcomings when guys get into it and do really low numbers. Mm-hmm. Um because you, you, there, it takes you so, so much elapsed time to get the repetition in. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like you don't get the, you know, maybe you, you build a bike this month and another one next month, and it's like, yeah, you just don't. It's hard to get that, that repetition and that muscle memory and that, that kind of thing that's really going to help you. I mean, the way I really describe it, I probably said this, I think I probably said this in, you know, in, in the poll, but it was like, you know, you build 10 bikes and you're learning and you, you build 20 bikes and maybe you're still learning and you, you build a hundred bikes and you, you feel like you got it mastered and then you build 500 bikes and realize you're never going to have it mastered. You know what I mean? <laughs> and that's, that's definitely been my journey for sure. You know, something along those lines. It's like, yeah. you know, I still have, you know, even at this point, you know, it's like, wow, what happened there? Or, Hey, I can improve that. Or how do I make that look a little better? You know? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. It's you know, definitely something about welding. That's interesting to me is, uh, over the years, I've just become more and more and more, I-, I believe this to be true, which is that I believe if you if you care about the welds being good and you put in the time, that they will get good. And um, in the beginning, it didn't seem as obvious to me that those were the thing. you know, like if you care and you try and you just put in all that hood time, you're going to get really good at it. But like over the years, I just keep seeing all these people who are like beginners and their welds are like whatever and they have no experience and then pretty quick they're laying very gorgeous beads and I've seen that you know maybe to a lesser extent with myself the progress that can be made and it's just like in the beginning when you're trying to TIG weld you have the foot pedal and you have your right hand you have your left hand you have uh, trying to manage the filler rod so it doesn't get stuck or fall out of the puddle mm-hmm. and your torch angle and you're trying to get your line of sight with the hood and so your body's mm-hmm. comfortable and you can oh, yeah, everything is so weird it's yeah. everything <laughs> at once and you know you need to rely on muscle memory to be any good at it and you can't have muscle memory in the beginning so it's like you just it's hard to imagine in the beginning ever getting to be good at it but then Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you see other people who are good and it's just hard to imagine getting there but it's just a matter of I think it's just only really a matter of time like I, I don't know if I really believe that much in like talented and untalented like maybe there's a maybe there's some capacity that people have to be better learners but I think it mostly comes down to whether or not you aspire to be good and you put in the time to get there no absolutely and it's I, I mean I do so, I mean, you know, not that my opinion is totally 100%. I totally can agree with that to a point. And the reason I say to a point is it, is it, is it does remind me a little bit like, you know, when I was 20-something and racing my bike a lot and, and, you know, it was always like, well, shoot, if I didn't have to work like so-and-so, I'm sure I would be as fast as they are. And it's like, well, maybe yes, but maybe no. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, I, I would be better than I am now, but I do think there are, you know, yeah. there are those situations where people do elevate things. I mean, Brad is a perfect example, you know, and, 
and uh, Brad Bingham, you know, and I mean, even the amount of welding, I can't even, I mean, I think he, we've had discussions many times over the years, but when I think he was at Moots, it was something like he was welding two bikes a day, you know, for years and years on end. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, I mean, you know, I think that's just amazing beyond the belief the amount of practice and, and like you say, he's also has to want to do a good job because he could, you know, if he didn't care, he could just slop his way through it. But the other part of that is like, Holy cow. I think I'd go out of my mind if I did that. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, wow. So every day, and that was Tyler was much the same way. I mean, I went, Tyler um, at Firefly. In Firefly. Now it was, he was at IF about, gosh, shoot. It's been 10 years ago now, I guess where Mm -hmm. I, was on the East Coast and stopped in to see him and hang out and it was a lot of fun. Was you know was when IF was there in Somerville and you know he was welding and it was fun to hang out and talk and you know check out the shop and there was you know such a different setting than I operate in because there was probably fifteen or twenty maybe maybe thirty I don't know these tack bikes and you know you'd grab one down weld it move on to the next one and you know and I kind of jokingly said yeah what happens when the when the when the rack runs dry, you know, and he's like, well, it hasn't happened yet. And uh, so once again, it's like, holy cow, I mean, the, the, the practice and the repetition and all that that you're going to get from that is, is beyond amazing. But there's also part of my personality that's like, oh, man, I would, uh, that would, you know, I, my hat's off to those guys and gals that just sit and do nothing but weld all day. I mean, it's yeah. truly, it's, it's yeah it's tough (laughs) yeah i think i remember reading uh probably tyler from firefly was one of them on on velocipede salon on smoked out they were talking about they had uh they had worked in um was it merlin or it was one of those boston shops they had worked for a couple years and then when they were uh sort of like trying to get a gig at the next place which might have been indie fab uh, you know, like if you can do this many bikes today, then you've got the job or something. And he did like almost twice as many as what they had exactly. asked him to do or something. Yeah. Was, I, I want to say yeah. it was like 10 steel bikes or something that he welded out. It was a huge number. And, yeah. And I, know, and I, and I actually, yeah. And, and actually, yeah. And he did, he did like 13 or so. I don't know that he, I shouldn't, shouldn't even try to do numbers, but I have heard that story also. Yeah. I actually heard it from Steve even, but yeah, and I have I have done that when I welded the speed wagons. Um, you know, we we would definitely crank through those, and that's probably the closest I've ever come to a production welding setting. But I mean, we we got we got good enough to where we'd get through I don't know thirty of those in a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the only you know experience I've had with that. And I and I have to say it, you know, it was one of those things where a lot of the guys would be like, "Oh, this is so easy, you could just do this all day and all night." And I'm like, "No, my back is killing me. My eyes are, you know, I'm." Yeah. Done. <laughs> yeah, I feel like uh, you know, like driving a car for an hour or two is like no big deal, you know, but when you're mm-hmm. doing like a 15-hour day driving your car across the country or whatever it is, it's just exhausting because you you really, I mean, if you're going to be responsible, you have to be really pretty focused the whole time. And then you're just you sitting still it, and yeah. you're in a, you're comfortable and you're upright and you're you know, you're just managing your blind spots and and whatever, keeping your eyes sure. on the road, but welding is like that i think times 10 you know because it's all body coordination you might be kind of contorted mm-hmm. and you need more mm-hmm. f- well i don't to say that you need more focus than driving who's to say uh you know one is maybe more yeah. bodily hazardous but <laughs> anyway sure. they're, they're very very critical things that you stay focused and uh in the short term it's not taxing but in a longer term i think it really can be quite exhausting oh, to just to stay focused that that level of focus oh, yeah. is hard to maintain well and the other thing too that i feel like i've learned this is something I've only learned probably in the last handful of years 
is, you know, if you can relax and lighten up your, your hand on the torch, you're probably going to do the best welding you ever have. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, if you can, if you can relax and don't hold your breath and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's probably going to go a whole lot better. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's one of the, I think one of the hardest things when, when folks are learning is that they're just like a hundred percent, like I want to kill this thing, you know? And, Mm -hmm. oh man, I mean, that's the thing that I've seen in, in the, in the UBI classes. And I mean, I hate to admit it, but I've seen guys and gals at their worst, you know, I mean, just totally in tears and, you know, just, just a wreck, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like, I've been good at everything all my life and I'm not good at this. And it's like, you know, there are very few people I think that are really good at that when, you know, when they start, I mean, it definitely, you know, is a skill that, that takes, that takes a lot of time. And I, I always do, you know, when I've taught, I always liken it to, I always tell people, I don't play a musical instrument, but I can totally get how this would be like playing a musical instrument because Mm -hmm. it's like, I do the same thing, you know, say this week I weld on a couple bikes on Monday and the rest of the week I'm doing all the other stuff around here. And so I don't weld again until the following Monday. Well, thankfully at this point in my career, I can pick it up and it'll be, it'll be okay. But I will notice that after I, you know, weld another bike, it's like, hey, this is getting a little easier, you know, it's going mm-hmm. a little faster now. So, I mean, I just really can understand how, you know, how a lot of practice and, and you know, it's almost like, I mean, you know, whatever I've heard that a lot of professional musicians, you know, whatever they pick up their, their instrument, just even if it's a couple hours every day, you know, yeah. just to going to kind of stay loose and stay fresh. And I do think that once you, you know, once you get up to those levels, I mean, that's what's important. And that's the other thing too, that we haven't even talked about is, I mean, and I've watched that. I think I'm very much a realist and I, you know, I, I, you know, you probably realize it, but behind the scenes of this whole thing is most of the guys and gals that are really doing this are, we're all friends. Um, and you know, if you rewind, you know, 15 years ago at NABs and, you know, look at NABs today, I mean, the quality of work from just about everybody out there Mm -hmm. is really getting better every year. And so it's, I mean, it is like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, you know, I mean, it's great for our little niche, our little industry, but it's really tough for a beginner. (laughs) I mean, I mean, I don't mean it in a bad way, but I, if my personality, if I were to be hopping into this world today and looking around at what other guys and gals are doing, like Mm -hmm. I would be just so floored and just, you know, I don't, I don't know. (laughs) And I I tend to think that the, like we have this, this sort of interesting culture in the frame building community where it's, it's very friendly. Most um, frame builders are really happy to talk shop with their peers. It's not mm-hmm. like industry secrets and competitive, you know, sort of process secrets or something. And, um, and then interestingly, like there's, there's a really big focus on craft and detail. And I mean, you know, there should be, it's a high end product generally, you know, handmade bikes, we're usually not trying to sell stuff at the, the $2,000 price point for a complete bike or something, right? Like frame sets start at 2000 and up, right? So like, um, uh, you know, it, it should be really very good and very refined, but to some degree, like, it's interesting because, uh, you know, having like perfect even bead spacing and like a beautiful aesthetic doesn't necessarily make the bike stronger or better functionally. And then your customer doesn't necessarily know the difference or care that much. Mm -hmm. You know, I think Mm -hmm. something I used to notice about like the Stinner offerings, Aaron Stinner's bikes was like the paint was Mm -hmm. just freaking cool looking. It just looked really good. Mm -hmm. And, and you think Mm -hmm. about like the, the photos that frame builders will take of their TIG welds 
And then you think of the photos that some frame builders take of the finished product with like the gorgeous paint or maybe like mm -hmm. photos of bikes out, you know, where you might ride them. And to me, it strikes me that the one, you know, the finished bike would resonate a lot better with your sort of prospective customer than the TIG welds. So I think like, I, I think it's really cool that, that we have this sort of culture of like, uh, like peer camaraderie and stuff and I, I think it's really cool that the bar is like always getting higher and that's like it makes it fun if you're a welder but I also feel like maybe to not discourage newer people is that like um, having that most perfect weld aesthetic is not necessarily the most important goal either right because like that doesn't necessarily matter to your bread and butter customers it needs to be safe it needs to be good and you need to be able to like produce I mean, you know, tell me what you think about this, but I think like it needs to be good. You need to be able to produce it in a reasonable time frame. But there's a difference between like that sort of, you know, career long, endless pursuit of, of perfection. And like, you know, after you weld 50 or 100 bikes, like it's it's probably pretty good at that point. Yeah, well, and I mean, I do, I can agree with you, with you know, on all sides with that. And I mean, you know, a lot of that boils down to, you know, why do people buy a bike from one builder versus the other? Is it the builder? Is it, is it the aesthetic? I mean, there are so many things that go into people's choices and trying to figure them out. Sometimes it's really tricky. Yeah. Um, so, you know, yeah. And you could, you know, you could argue sometimes, you know, whatever you see the expensive bike where the, the welder maybe got hit on the shoulder or something. So you can see a little bump in it or, you know, who knows what, but yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, as long as they're, as they're safe and, and uh and rideable and you know um they should yeah it should be just fine um i guess the other thing that i think really comes through with all that too i think is personality and probably the builder's personality yeah, you know because sure. you look at that you know you do look around and you see some of the guys that are just a little guys and gals you know men and women some are a little more basic than others and i totally get that too because i do think that my my personal style is you know like I get people say this a lot, but I think it's a little more straightforward. I mean, I don't tend to get into a lot of kind of uh, crazy details that I feel, you know, maybe, I mean, while they add to the aesthetic, which is great, um, I do think there's a real rabbit hole there of um, how much do they ri contribute to the ride of the bike, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, and if they don't dramatically contribute to the ride, but dramatically continue to contribute to the price, um, chances are that a lot of that stuff doesn't get seen too often on my bike. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's just a personal, you know, it's just a personal thing. I think as a, as somebody who was a bike mechanic for a lot of years before I got into building frames, I mean, I, I'm, you know, my goal was always to kind of build, build bikes for, for people who, you know, my friends and whatever, you know, so, um, so it was, you know, it was definitely kind of, I don't know, maybe a little more basic, but at the same time, still high quality, you know, um, and, and handmade and all that, all yeah. those things that go into it. So, um, so yeah, yeah, I and, always and really I, loved a diamond frame bike, you know, a pretty straightforward mm -hmm. one. Aesthetically, uh, I never had anything with my own bikes with the Cobra frames. You know, I've made like about, you know, almost 20 bikes and the ones that I've made, there's nothing like too signature about them. Um, I think I, I, I gravitate toward what I call like the single bend rear end, you know, like if you look at an old fat mm -hmm. chance mountain bike, those tended to have that, the sort of, you know, mm -hmm. one bend, uh, per seat stay or chain stay. And, um, I think that mm -hmm. looks cool where that functionally makes sense. You know, the function matters, but like, and mm -hmm. so like sort of, you know, straight lines and more angular or something. I never had like two signature of an aesthetic. I just felt like, 
a, a well-designed diamond frame bike with, you know, probably round tubes that, uh, you know, it's, it's the right, um, wall thicknesses and alloy and tube diameter and the geometry is right. And, uh, like that was more my speed. And I think that does pose an issue then if you're a builder and you're trying to make a business go of it, you know, there, there's, um, if the frame construction itself is not like something, you know, remarkable or something that, that stands out in and of itself because it does something quite different, uh, then mm-hmm. like, you know, that becomes a, a marketing challenge of like, how do you, how do you gather the attention of the prospective buyer? And, um, mm-hmm. not, not something that I'm the best at, you know, because mm-hmm. I mean, it's tough for any of us, uh, for anyone trying to make it, uh, in frame building to really, uh, stand out and make a remarkable product, but especially, uh, you know, like I'm just not a, uh, I don't know. That was my style. I guess that was my speed. Like those were the bikes that I really, uh, appreciated the most. I think were the ones that were, you know, just a, a, a like sensible diamond frame. Sure. And I see that a lot with your bikes too. You know, I mean, you're not, you're not doing any, yeah. uh, any, you know, like the twin top tube, you know, forties cruiser <laughs> bike aesthetic or something, you know, you're, you're making yeah, pretty straightforward. Not much. I mean, I've done a couple of those over the years oh, yeah. and, you know, I actually just had a, somebody, uh, one of my good friends actually in the industry was giving me a little bit of a hard time and not doing something too crazy for the shows. And I had to rewind to a time period before he was in the bike world um, and show him the, I don't know if you ever saw for the Portland Nabs, I did basically like a knockoff of an SE quad angle um, built around 29er wheels. Wow. Um, and it was actually made specifically for a customer. So, so, you know, I have done, I mean, I have done some, some interesting projects over the years and, you know, the project I did for the NABs in Connecticut too, was a little, uh, slightly, a few of those details were definitely not things I do very often that kind of Tomac inspired bike. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I do occasionally get into doing that stuff. Um, but it does, you know, a lot of this boils down for me and I, I, I don't never want to cross you know, come across as well as this guy's only after money. Um, I'm not just after money, but at the same time, this is the way I make my living. And so, you know, as I've said a million times, if I don't make money building bikes, I have to go find a job, which yep. is not a very wonderful prospect for me. Mm-hmm. So I do have to do things that, um, you know, that I can be profitable at. And, and I do think that, you know, a lot of that, that yeah. crazy stuff, while sometimes it can be fun and interesting, uh, it can also be very frustrating and time consuming. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so to turn those, those projects mm-hmm. sometimes into, into profitable transactions can be a lot harder to do. Yeah. So I do, I do find that, um, you know, that, yeah, some, you know, more typical diamond frames. And I think, you know, it's interesting too, you talk about that. And on one hand we can sound really boring. Oh, just an old diamond frame. But, you know, for me is, is one of the aesthetics is kind of the proportions too. I'm really big on proportions. You know, I don't like, I don't like, I mean, I, it, it can get challenging these days because a lot of riders do want, you know, say their bars in their hand or saddle level, you know, they want a real comfortable position, but, you know, so I always try and, you know, balance things out. You know, I don't like to have big stacks of spacers or stems with a ton of vertical rise. And, mm-hmm. you know, I also don't like to have super long head tubes, you know, so I'm always kind of trying to trying to balance that out. And it is nice when I get, you know, I get people that, that compliment me on that. And it's like, yeah, because I, I do pay attention to it, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, although it, it the bike might just be solid blue with a silver logo on it, there was still a lot of thought that went into it, you know yeah. what I mean? Um, yeah, definitely. Because you know. when you control all that and when you use like a, 
you know, like people who are building with lugs, like when I talked to Chris Bishop on the show, you know, that mm-hmm. he's, he used the term lug jail, you know, being stuck in a lug jail. Oh, yeah, but, for sure. But, I mean, it's, it can be very <laughs> limiting, and, and there's, there's ways around that sometimes, uh, depending on how far you're willing to go. But, yeah, when you can control all the angles and, and you have all the different, uh, you know, tube suppliers and you can, you know, I imagine when you're, when you're doing a steel frame, you, you would feel free to mix and match Columbus and Reynolds and all that stuff, probably right. Sure. Yeah, that's pretty common uh-huh. practice. So, you know, you get to choose the butt placement and the wall thickness and the alloy and the diameter and all these things. Uh, and, and you're doing that based on like, you know, 20 some years of experience, like 25 years now, right? I mean, for 20 years. For me, 20. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Cause 99 was when you got started. So yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. you got lots of, lots of experience, you know, you can get that, that head tube length, uh, just the way you want it. You do use a lot of, uh, Paragon machine works head tubes. I do, yeah. I, I actually I do use a lot of their parts throughout my bikes. I mm-hmm. mean, they're, you know, I I met Mark pretty early on, and it does make sense, you know, to have a oh U.S. made parts on a on a U.S. made bike whenever possible. Um, and yeah. it, it is interesting too. I am. I mean, I'm always interested in in uh, you know in some of the smaller guys. You know, sometimes maybe they're they're getting their own CNC machine, or maybe they're having their own head tube made so that it's their own specific you know style. Mm-hmm. Um, which once again, I think is great, um, and it it can help you know maybe help your bikes be a little more unique. Although I I do struggle at times when when they're <laughs> maybe the design is done just to be different if the function doesn't really change much. Yep. Um, but uh, but you know yeah when I was way, way things go. When I was building the hardtail mountain bike that I've been building on my YouTube channel the last six months, mm-hmm. um, I was thinking, okay, you know, I, I, I want a 4130 head tube for, uh, well, I was actually considering a 49 millimeter lower headset, but I gave that up pretty quick. But anyway, a uh, 44 millimeter head tube, right? And so I was like, well, mm-hmm. I can just buy one from Paragon or I could make my mm-hmm. own. And the heat sinks I had are of a consistent diameter, and so I kind of wanted the inside diameter to be straight while the Paragon 1 is relieved in the middle. And so it, it wouldn't work perfectly with my heat sinks, but it's not really that big of a deal. But so I was going to turn my own. I have a manual lathe. But by the time you get, you know, an actual long and, and rigid boring bar and you, you order that very particular 4130 tubing that's heavy enough of a wall that you have material on the inside and the outside and you machine the inside and the outside and it's a really big job to do uh, not to mention you know getting a great surface finish on steel with a manual lathe is not super easy so anyway I considered for like a couple minutes I was like I could make my own and I was just like <laughs> no there's no way I'm doing that so I bought a Paragon one and and I think it is I let the vanity my vanity get the best of me that I went to these troubles to change only the aesthetics of it <laughs> But um, mm-hmm. it's just such a ubiquitous tube. The the Paragon uh, head tube, uh, it's a great service that Mark offers those. But you see the Paragon and the or the the titanium and the steel ones, they have that same corner radius and they have the same. They just have that same look, and and they're just so common. I I wanted to do something different. I let my my vanity get the best of me, and so I just I cosmetically changed the look of it just a little bit so that it would uh, sure. it would look a little bit different. And I think it looks great, but man, it's like I can't justify the the time that you know, I put into it. <laughs> like, because I'm building one bike, right? So what what does it matter totally. if it took me an extra half an hour to machine some some work holding parts and then to put it on the lathe and and to do it? But if yeah. you're making a bike a week, well, an extra half an hour is massive. Uh, you know, really adds well, up. Well, and I think. I actually feel like that's, you know, especially as I reflect back on what I've 
been able to do and not been able to do. But I think, you know, even if you take somebody, say, my size, who when I was doing a lot of steel bikes, my numbers were around 100. You know, these days they're in the 40 to 60 range or somewhere in there. Um, you know, I can have a great idea, you know, whatever it is. Maybe it's a new dropout or maybe it's this or it's that. Uh, and it's really hard to put it through to fruition because I just don't have, you know, am I going to build whatever, you know, I need to get a decent price on some dro- having some dropouts made, so I need to build a couple hundred of them. Well, is it worth going out and investing the time and, and working with somebody to build me these dropouts, which, you know, in a, in a year or two, the standard could change. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, I mean, it is, it is really a challenge. And I, I feel like I've, you know, over my years of doing this, I've had a handful of ideas at different times and, you know, really quickly come up, to, you know, against a brick wall. And, and admittedly, a lot of it has to do with numbers and dollars. You know, I just don't have, you know, don't have the, don't have a high enough, not selling enough bikes to where the numbers make any sense mm-hmm. at all. Um, you know, so it can, in that regard, I mean, I suppose there's a, things that are maybe a little bit limiting, um, but at the end of the day, I mean, you know, you have to decide, well, how much, once again, how much does that uh, add to why somebody would or would not purchase a bike from you? Because, you know, there's still, to me, there's still a big difference between, you know, a nice Paragon piece and, you know, maybe something that's not quite so nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are, you know, there are good options available, but no, it, it, it does get really, get really tricky. And I think that that's too where, you know, some of the companies, be it, you know, I don't know, Firefly or Speedwagon or some of those guys that are, you know, maybe they're more reliably putting out 150 or 200 bikes a year. Um, so a lot of those projects make a whole lot more sense, you know. Um, mm-hmm. They can they can come up with an idea and, and put it to have the parts made and then use them in a timely manner so they don't lose money on them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because when you invest, you know, you know five or $10,000 or I don't know what it would cost to get a run of dropouts from different machine shops or from Paragon or someone, but if you got mm-hmm. custom dropouts and you sink a good chunk of change into that and, uh, you know, it doesn't save you any money per pair over buying other Paragon ones, you're not going to really get a better price by getting custom mm-hmm. ones. It'll cost you more probably, or maybe it'll be the same, but probably more. Uh, mm-hmm. And so if you sink all this money mm-hmm. in there and you only end up breaking even after like a year or two or five years, or depending on how long it takes you, uh, you know, you might be able to do that if you just have cash around, but any investment that you make, you know, should, should make you some sort of return. If, I mean, if you're thinking like a business person, it should. And, absolutely, uh, yeah. No, you know, absolutely, yeah. What is it? Somebody, uh, uh, somebody in the machining world was was giving their sort of their quick shorthand for investing and thinking about ROI, return on investment. And so, like, if you're going to buy a piece of equipment, he, he compares it to government-backed bonds that, for like, base, essentially no risk, you can get like three percent return on a government-backed bond. And so, if you're going to go in a very risky direction by like buying a piece of equipment or investing in something that you, you may never sell all of them or, you know, you might get what, whatever might happen. If, if you're going to like invest your money into it, you should at least get 3%. Like you can get 3% anywhere. You shouldn't, you know? And so like, does sure. this add to your, your, your desirability of your bikes or does it just, I mean, maybe it just makes your life easier, you know, like flat mount dropouts just are a huge pain in the butt for builders. And if you, if you got a batch machined of um, dropouts that solved that issue or streamlined your process, mm-hmm. that's worth something. Um, sure. You know, whatever it is that you're getting out of it, it just, you know, it's, is one metric for thinking about return on investment. I know uh, 
Yoshi, who does uh, Koala Spikes, uh, used to be in uh, East Coast and then moved back to Japan. Um, mm-hmm. But he has, I think Paragon is still making his dropouts every once and again. Mm-hmm. And they're really cool. They're really cool mm-hmm. and, and, you know, signature. And then I think they, they solve part of that flat mount issue for him. So, you know, that's, mm-hmm. it's integral to his, his brand and it's got his logo on there. And they look really cool. But, you know, from a business decision, I don't know how, uh, you know, there's, it's a big consideration because you got to sink a lot of money in order to get a batch of dropouts. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's, you know, you talk about it too. I mean, it can be dropouts or it can be tubes or it can be, you know, um, anything like that, you know, once again, it's like, okay, I've got a great idea for some new top tube and it's like, okay, well, how much, what can I commit to having made? And, you know, how is that a, how many years supply is that for me? So, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I hope to, you know, once again, I'd, I hope it doesn't come across as, oh, well then you, if you're a really small guy, you have to build these boring bikes. I mean, that's not the point at all. It's mm-hmm. just one of the more one of the challenges I think that you go through when you're when you are a smaller builder, um, because you know, gratefully there are, you know, there are a lot of good options. Be it tubes, you know, when you start looking from you know from different manufacturers, obviously Paragon makes nice parts, um, but the battle, you know, I guess in there is just to try and try and set yourself apart from the others, which which can get tr- tricky to mm-hmm. do. Yeah, and I, to me, it strikes me more and more all the time that. Well, you know, when I talked to Carl Strong on this show, uh, he was saying, you know, he didn't want to sound like a curmudgeon, but he felt like one of the ways that things are different now than they used to be is that it's it's turned from more of like a, you know, he, he said more of a technocratic sort of merit-based thing where you were actually making a better product than the big companies mm-hmm. and the bike shops. And nowadays, mm-hmm. the, the big companies have really kind of upped their quality of what they're producing. And now what you're getting from handmade bikes, as much as anything, a lot of times, is the fashion element and that it's, you know, what you're, the way that it looks. And to me, intuitively, I mean, whether or not this gets you excited, I think um, a, a really utility-oriented way of thinking about standing out as a builder is to think about paint, you know, because that is something that your customer will definitely see. It's something expressive. You know, your customer is sure. not going to be a weld uh, inspector. They're not going to know the difference probably between a, a good and a tremendous weld or you know, they maybe don't even, uh, who knows if they know all these things. I don't want to be cynical about it. You shouldn't make a bad product. You should be an expert as a builder and you should make the best thing you can. But you also have to understand that, you know, what compels your customer to buy uh, is different than what com- uh, compels your peer to give you their respect, right? So, like, um, it's not always a it's not always the best spent energy to, to try and impress your peers and, you know, paint, I think, I think is a really useful way of standing out to people. And if that, if that makes sure. you feel like, uh, you know, jaded or something, then, I mean, there's other ways to do it too, but I think there's a lot of utility in, in looking at paint as a way to like, uh, paint and logos and branding and stuff as a way to like, uh, make your bike, sure. your bikes a little bit different than other ones, especially yeah. if what you like about bicycles is more straightforward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it is tricky. And I think that, you know, I mean, you kind of hit one of the nails on the head there is is the marketing. I mean, you know, how many of the small builders, you know, are, are marketing gurus, you know, and, and some mm-hmm. of them, you know, some of the guys I think out there that are maybe a little bit better with marketing and photographs and social media is builders, you know, I don't know. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's just, it's one of the challenges, um, you know, that we face that any small business faces when you're, yep. you know, when you operate at, at such a small level. I mean, there's definitely no, no marketing guy or gal here in my, in my shop, you know, yeah. so, 
So yeah, it's all you need, kind of, you need you to know, like whatever I can put together. You need to wear so many hats at once, and um, yeah, I mean, I focus quite a bit on marketing with what I do, and um, sometimes I wonder if it's even the best use of my resources because it takes a lot of time to produce this podcast and the YouTube channel. And I mm-hmm. don't, I honestly don't spend quite enough time creating content for Instagram, but like, uh, you know, what, what's valuable about it is that I get to be a, a better part of the community of people that I care about and that I hope to sell to. And, um, and I think that's just kind of the nature of having a small business is that like, um, if you were, I, I've used this example before, if you were a plumber and you just did really good work, uh, people need that in your local area, like people need these basic services to be provided, but like, in your local area or, or in the world even, like, um, you know, the other big companies mostly have bicycle needs covered. And nobody, like, needs a custom, very few people need custom bikes. And so it's more of, like, uh, I feel like the marketing becomes more essential then because, uh, you know, you, you need a way to, like, reach your customer so that they can they can see something, like, exciting and something of value in what you offer uh, that might, you know, make them interested or something and so like you know for better or worse i think it's a it's a big part of what you do when what you offer is not uh like a like a totally essential you know it's not like healthcare or plumbing or something it's like nobody needs sure. a custom bike but they might want one you know and like what is Absolutely. it about your bike that's exciting what about it do they sure. not you know if they walk into a bike shop with five grand and they could get a really cool specialized but what is it that they could get when they bring that same money to you? Uh, maybe they get something that's that's even more special and like you know like let's let's talk about that. Let's emphasize those things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and I do think that you know part of getting a bike from a small builder, small company, whatever you want to call it. I mean, it is part of it is is going to be. I mean, the interaction and the experience, and I think that I think a lot of us that ended up doing this probably you know, that's how it began for us. I mean, and was, was definitely the case for me. I mean, I started working in the bike shop in the mid eighties when I was still in high school and, you know, just mountain bikes were coming on strong at that point and, and it was fun and, you know, racing bikes. And so you are, you know, you're constantly whatever, looking at the next cool new thing. And for whatever reason for me, I mean, those, you know, for me, it was, well, Kleins were big at that point in our area and, uh, Bontragers and Richie and some of those guys, um, and, uh, you know, I think that, that even, and, and the Italian bikes, the Italian road bikes that were being brought in at that point too. And it just, you know, it was almost just that kind of that idea that, yeah, Hey, you know, I could have a bike made for me or, you know, a bike made by somebody who I could potentially contact. Yeah. Um, and so I do think that that's, you know, that is hopefully part of the experience and, and, uh, and I, hope that that's not getting lost in the world today <laughs> yeah um i truly do because you know somebody like myself i um you know i have a couple kids and you know i kind of watch their generation and it's like you know my goodness sometimes they they're happy to just you know sit home and and uh am- order everything on amazon where i still love to go and talk to somebody and I know. I know. A couple of years ago, I was in the in the uh, in the market to get some some new shoes and some new, actually some new work boots. And I started digging around, and you know, it's like, oh, hey, you know, I've never really had my foot measured, and oh my goodness, I could have this optimized, and oh my goodness, I could actually have these boots made in the U.S. for me. And you know, and to mm-hmm. me, that was really cool, right? Yeah. Uh, matter of fact, another one. I just had a, a good friend of mine is a is a metal worker and and 
builds aluminum motorcycle tanks. And, you know, and a while ago, I kind of had this idea for a tank that I wanted that was slightly different with, that's my other hobby is vintage motorcycles. And so it was mm-hmm. really fun for me to go through this process and kind of, kind of work with him and like, okay, we're going to increase the capacity and this is how we're going to make it look. And I mean, I hope that's what I'm able to offer for my customers as well. And I, and I think I am, mm-hmm. you know, and, and like you say, maybe it's, it's the experience and it's the aesthetic. And I mean, it is kind of amazing. I think sometimes a lot of these customers, I mean, over as the years go by, they buy a handful of bikes and, you know, they become pretty good friends um, just through the transactions and interactions. Um, and uh, and I do think that's you know it seems to be in this day and age maybe something that's that we're kind of losing. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's that um, joke of like you go into the Lowe's or Home Depot or something, and you you're you're walking down the uh, the plumbing aisle or something, and the 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 person working the store walks up and asks if they can help, and you say, "I know more than you." Right. That's a I feel yeah, like that's a exactly. meme. I think that's like a Ron Swanson from parks and rec or something but anyway it's a meme right and and i think we've had those experiences where you're talking to people uh who are in some service capacity at their jobs and uh they're really not that helpful and they're really not giving you that feeling that like that they're adding any value and i think uh when you when you like when you study like business related things and you talk to people who are studying marketing and, and, and sales and all these things, they, they use the term, you're talking about value a lot, you know, like adding value. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really sure. important thing that when you are selling a product that reflects yourself and your own skills and your own, you know, and it's a high end product and it's special and it's unique. Like if you can't mm-hmm. make people feel that, like that they're like excited to work with you or they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're excited to be able to like, have your expertise in this small area of the world of like, you know, the bicycle applied to their life and what they can benefit from it. If like that doesn't make them feel a little bit excited or special, then like, you know, it's probably something you need to work on because um, I don't know. (laughs) Cause like that's, you know, I think about people that I've talked to who really knew their stuff and like, you know, you get like, you're really happy to work with them because like, damn, they know a lot about what they're doing and, and, you know, you get, you get a little bit of their time and man, it really helps you, you know, like, especially if somebody's really an expert about fit or they really understand, you know, something as it applies to, you know, your hobby riding bikes, you love it. You love riding bikes. Mm-hmm. And now you get a little bit of time with this person and it makes a big difference in your, in your experience or something. And so mm-hmm. I think that's like, you know, you can't be that, that person in the store when you ask them a question about the product and they pick up the box and they read off the back and it's like, you, you don't think I read that before I asked you the question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to hope for, hope for some more experience above and beyond that, I guess, huh? Yeah. Although it is a, it is a little tricky, though. I have to say in the bike world, you know, the, the way components come out, a new one every week. Yep. And, I mean, half the time I am here, and, oh, yeah, have you seen the new whatever it is? Oh, not yet. Let me take a look. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, you know, I think my hope is at this point, you know, once you have been in the bike industry for a while, I mean, we're, stuff is being refined and improved, but it's a pretty reasonable argument that the way the, the stuff functions hasn't dramatically changed. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's constantly being refined and improved, but uh, but thankfully, most for the most part, it, it still works very similar. So, yeah, you know, earlier when you were talking about going to the um, Connecticut NABS show, it made mm-hmm. me think of a question, which is um, there's this sort of I feel like there's two schools of thought 
that I've heard of, and I'm sure there's many others. Uh, when it comes to like <laughs> showing at a trade show like NABS, and I, I know you've mm-hmm. done that uh, a handful of times, probably quite a few times, right? <laughs> um, what do yeah. you feel like? Uh, you know, pros and cons or, or preferred preferred do you, do, preferred method for you. Do you feel like it's better to bring your bread and butter of like what you really sell a lot of, and show that as a way to more like accurately represent your your work to attract the customers that you actually want, or is it better mm-hmm. to bring something that's a little bit more spectacle? You know, make something a little mm-hmm. weird for the show. Because uh, you were sort of mentioning that you had you made something a little more unusual. Like, uh, do you feel like that bites you in the ass that then you get all this interest from people who aren't really your your customer anyway? Or like, how does that work out when you bring something that either is right up your alley and right in your wheelhouse sure. versus something that's a little off the wall? Not. Yeah, I mean, I think what um, I, I for me, I've mixed it up a little bit. You know, I have done some of those projects, and then I've. Other years I've gone to NABs and been like, you know, I'm going to take the stuff that I build and I hope that I'm going to interest people in, in like you say, the bread and butter stuff. I mean, you might be familiar. I do bikes that I call my builder specials. And those are, I mean, my, my goal with those bikes is like really to get people that didn't think they can afford a custom bike or a handmade bike or bespoke bike, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, here's something for you and it's a complete bike and it's priced as a complete bike. And, you know, and so it's, you know, there's no surprises. Um, I, I guess ultimately what I've, um, yes, there is absolutely a catch 22. You do some super showy thing and, and there's a couple parts to, to that, right? Number one, how long does it take you to make it? I mean, if you just spent the last three months making this thing and it's not sold, yeah. you know, it's going to be pretty, <laughs> things get pretty tricky from your, from the business end of thing. Um, so there's, there's a little bit of danger there. And, and then the other question is, yeah, even if, if everybody loves it, I mean, are they going to buy it? Well, you know, there's some would say, well, they're not going to buy that, but maybe that draws them in to buy, to buy something else. So, um, you know, all that's to say is that I do feel like I've gone back and forth over the years and what it boils down to for me personally, and I think what I have learned over the years is it's important, important to me that I'm really into it. If I'm going to do something that's a little bit, um, off of, of what I do day in and day out, I want to make sure that I'm into it enough so I can execute it well. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I, nothing comes to mind, but I, I've, I've had the feeling over the years of getting into projects and just been like, why did I do this? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? This was, this was a mistake. I should have just said no from the get go. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's not, once again, it's hopefully not to say that I'm just boring and all those kind of things, but it just, you know, it just, just not into it. So I don't know if you saw the, the whole part of what I did for the Connecticut show. And that was kind of, uh, I, in a way, it was it was just a, a, an idea for me to to have some entertainment because it does um, it did kind of stem from some discussions with folks and and uh, when I heard the show was in Connecticut that year, I said, "Well, shoot, am I going to go? I mean, that's a long way for me to go, right? I'm about mm-hmm. as far away from there as you can get." And I've gone to all the shows at that point, right? And I know the expenses and I know how expensive it is to ship bikes and to pack by, you know, all the stuff that goes along with it. And then I, so I, one day I said to myself, you know, I was like, you know, the only way I'm going to go is if I can just take one bike. And then I was like, well, shoot, what would I take, you know? And, and so then it was, then, then it all morphed into this whole idea of like, you know what, I'm going to do this contest. I'm going to solicit people's ideas and then I'm going to, you know, pick a winner and, and give them the bike at the end of the show, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and it was fun. It was fun for me too. And, and it was actually kind of entertaining to see, I mean, what really struck me 
with how many of the the entrants. I mean, the majority of them. This was a couple years ago, right? And even now, it would hold true. But there's a, a uh, majority of them seem to be kind of gravel, what we call gravel bikes or packing bikes or do everything bikes. But there was an awful lot of pinion and roll off requests. Hmm. And what blew me away about that is I build very few of those in the normal realm. And so I, I kind of got to wondering, you know, it's like, wow, so do people really want those bikes? But they're just, you know, maybe they can't justify the expense or something. Um, you know, I don't know. So it was also, you know, it was also a little bit of a, you know, once again, it was some entertainment. Hey, let's, you know, here's, here's your chance. Tell me what you want. If you, if you, if you, if you're at the top of my list, I'll build it and give it to you, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so it was, um, you know, definitely a really fun thing, but I do think, you know, once again, I guess to get back to your question for me personally, it has been kind of a combination of like, yeah, build, you know, maybe build something fun if you're into it and you can execute it well, you know, otherwise, sure. Build the stuff that, that you want people to buy, you know, what do you, what do I want to sell? Yeah. Um, build that stuff because that's, that's helps me, helps me keep doing this, you know? Yeah. And like, uh, yeah. when I was listening to the podcast, you did, you know, the poll podcast, um, mm-hmm. and you know, you were just talking about, yeah, you like, you know what it is that you're especially good at and what you focus on doing and, um, and stuff that's too far outside of your wheelhouse, you know, it doesn't make sense for you to do it. And, you know, so you try yeah. and focus. So, I mean, if you have a pretty defined sort of thing, um, you know, you would like to to continue to get that sort of uh, work, the stuff that you know mm-hmm. how to, you know how to get it in and get it out and and cover your customers' needs. You know, when you when you uh, for the for the longest time when I would build bikes, I would always say to myself, you know, if I just built two of the same bike in a row, the first oh, one would take me a white a week. Oh, first <laughs> one would take me a week, and the second one would take me you know, a day or something, right? Whatever. But sure. like, but the first time through, um, I'm scratching my head about how am I going to do this? And then I scrap a pair of chain stays, trying to dimple them a certain way and still make it smooth. And then I stopped to build myself some little tool for this and some little tool for that. And, <laughs> you know, I, was, I never did that many numbers, period. So, you know, I was, I was slow no matter what. But, but the second time you do exactly the same thing, it speeds it up. So, so if, you, if you're always doing something a little bit different and trying new things and trying new parts... Uh, it slows you down considerably, and and I think it it makes sense to specialize and to find the things that you're good at. I think mountain sure. bikes tend to be a lot more complicated in general uh, because of the tube bending and because of the clearances and the dropper posts and all that stuff. Um, but maybe I just say that because I don't I don't have as much experience with mountain bikes. But I I think there's more going yeah. on there, right? So like uh, suspension forks too. More variables, yeah. Yeah, clearance. well, you know, it's actually been. I mean, that's another thing for me that's been pretty interesting just to watch. And I was joking with a friend the other day. I was like, yeah, when was the last time you built a fixed gear bike? You know, because if you rewind it, yeah, I don't know, 15 years ago or something, we were, everybody was doing a lot of them, you know. So I think things do kind of come and go in waves or what have you. And, and I think right now, I mean, the you know, what we're calling the gravel or the all-road bike seems to be really, be really popular. I mean, I totally get it because I, I do think it's just a, for a lot of the folks that I build bikes for, it's a great bike. You know, they're not competitively racing on the road, and they just want a bike that does just about everything. Um, mm-hmm. But it, you know, it's. I mean, one always has to wonder. I mean, what's around the next corner? You know, I mean, yeah. You know, what's the what's the next thing going to be? I think when I started, when I started, I was definitely building a bit, few more mountain bikes. I mean, single speed mountain biking was was pretty popular, you know, years ago, and so. Um, and I could even admit too that so much of what I do is driven by the orders that I get, you know. So, 
um, it's since I've started doing this. I mean, I've, my list has never been down to zero. Um, so I always find myself, you know, well, if I'm wondering what I need to do today, well, I need to get get to work building the next one on the list. You know, yeah. So, um, you know, it's uh, it's it's maybe been been driven a little bit like that. I mean, I'm actually looking to. Uh, Hopefully for this next year, I, I actually want to expand my my builders choice or my builders special offerings. I just think it's 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 a really, you know, it's essentially a complete bike for four to forty five hundred dollars, kind of depending on what the configuration is. Kind of an Ultegra level bike, steel steel frame, and mm-hmm. you know, do some different stuff with. Um, I mean, I've I've always offered road and and kind of kind of sort of offer offered gravel or I do offer gravel, but it's been more or less word of mouth. So kind of. Make sure that I get the word out that there's those and and do an all road version of that too. And I just I just feel like that fits a really nice niche for a lot of people. Yeah. Um. And uh, you know, if I can if I can do more of that stuff, I mean, because that's you know, ultimately my goal too. I just want to get more people on bikes. <laughs> yeah, I think it's you it's know. tricky the the business model of frame building for a lot of reasons, and one of them is that the kinds of people who are attracted to making bikes tend to be practical people who like working with their hands and I think a lot of people who get into frame building have worked in bike shops and are like you know like for me my access to money uh has always been you know that you know the kind of money you spend on a custom bike it's a lot right like that's for sure absolutely (laughs) and, and there's different ways to look at it you know like sometimes I'll say well, you know, it's not that expensive. Think about somebody whose hobby is four-wheeling in their Jeep. They might spend ten grand on a really affordable build. So, like, I guess it's not that expensive of a hobby, but, like, it is. It's a lot of money, and for a lot of people, it's a lot of money. And so it's it's hard because you want to, um, you know, you don't just want to service, like, rich guys. You want to you wanna make stuff for people you can relate to, and yet, like, it's it's also a pitfall, I think, to um, to assume that your customer and you have the same like value system, and that you and that, you know you're not always your own customer. And uh, whenever you make anything by hand, it can be hard to sell it to your peers. Uh, always, but you know, it's it's just it's it, it's expensive to make stuff by hand. And um, if you're the kind of person who likes working with your hands and making stuff with your hands, I think that's just like it's baked into that equation that like you're going to make something that's more expensive than the kind of stuff that you would generally buy. And now, you know, mm-hmm. people who really love cycling will spend a disproportionate amount of their income on it. And it's probably mm-hmm. true of some other hobbies. So like, that's not an across the board kind of thing, but, but it's hard. I think sure. there's just so many builders who, who relate to that feeling of like, wow, this is so expensive, you know, and like, I want, mm-hmm. I want to make it something that's more accessible. I don't want it to be so elite. And so it's it's cool that you've figured out ways to do that because I know that you you think a lot about profitability and um, mm-hmm. you know how, how to make it work because at the end of the day if you have to go and get a job working for somebody else then it it kind of changes the nature of it it changes the nature of how responsive you can be to your uh, existing customers and how mm-hmm. well you can service their needs and the lead times you can give to people and um, you know right. I don't think it's too much to ask that you uh, if you're gonna make you know, custom bikes for a living that you should be able to, to have that be your only source of income. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, once again, that gets back to that whole marketing thing too, right? You know, do you, how do you connect with people? How do you, you know, how do you, how do you get them to want to buy your stuff? You know, is it more expensive or cheaper? Well, you know, all those, all those questions that come into play. And I do think that, I mean, gratefully, I think that there is something to be said. You know, Carl Strong and I are great friends, and, you know, we talk about this kind of stuff probably monthly. And, 
you know, I think that once you, one of the biggest things in this is, 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 you know, is, is getting out there and getting orders and then getting the bikes done. I mean, you know, unfortunately, sometimes things get in the way and we don't get them done quite as quickly as we want to. I mean, a perfect example for me, I actually had an accident on my bike about six weeks ago now, and I was just amazed. I mean, thankfully, I didn't get, I didn't break any bones, but I had so much road rash, and I was I was working at like 50% there for a couple yeah. of weeks. And gratefully, I mean, I'm very happy that, you know, most of my customers right now understand that I'm one person and I got hurt and I'm doing my best to get back on it. But, um, you know, what I was getting at was that, you know, once you're around for a while and people know that, that they know that you're going to deliver them a bike, um, I mean, that's that's a huge thing, you know, because I think that, unfortunately, in our in this little niche industry, sometimes that, that is not the norm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that it, it can sour people on the experience really quickly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it is it is our it is a battle and the goal is, you know, is just, just to get in there and, you know, definitely see what you can do to to get stuff done. Um, and once you've done that for a while and, and hopefully you're a nice, decent person and people like their bikes and and uh, then, you, you know, then things then things do continue to move forward. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh I think uh I noticed that when I used to send bike frames to powder coat that were like the bar of entry to starting a small powder coat business is so low and I think there's a mm-hmm. lot of people who think oh I could do this and they get a powder coat oven and they get a powder coat gun or something and then they they don't know how to manage multiple orders and they don't have sandblasting on site maybe and they lose something or dent something or there's just so mm-hmm. many things that can go wrong and uh and so for me, like I found this guy years ago who would powder coat a frame for more than the other guys charged, but um, but he did a really good job, had good attention to detail, uh-huh. and he would call me back, <laughs> and he would finish it in like two days, uh-huh. which was a pretty good turnaround, and I had to drive 50 uh-huh. miles. So it was like a pain in the butt because I was spending like almost four hours driving it there and back, and then driving there and back uh-huh. again to pick it up, but what it meant was that I wasn't going to lose parts. I wasn't going to have product damaged and that it was going to look pretty good Mm -hmm. when it was done. And so just like working with someone who was on top of their stuff, just enough to like finish the project in a reasonable time frame and call me back. That was like, that was enough to secure my business for years, you know, which I didn't do a huge Mm -hmm. volume, but I, you know, it was years of committed (laughs) customer relationship that I had with him just because you know, is that baseline level of, of like responsibility. And so if you, if you, um, what is it, uh, you, you under promise and over deliver. I mean, I think that sure. means a lot to people. It is. And it's, and it's tricky. Um, I, you know, I will say after doing it for all these years, you know, there's whatever, something, there's a million and one things that can get in your way. So at the end of the day, I mean, it's just important that, you know, that bikes do get done and people are happy with them and, 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 uh, yeah. And hopefully you, you know, get to keep, keep moving forward. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it, it is, it is tricky, you know, especially once again, when you're, I mean, there's days that I would kill to have somebody take care of, you know, whatever social media or answering emails and all that <laughs> stuff. But yet at the same time, I think that's also what, what people appreciate, you know, because if they call and somebody answers the phone, you know, they're, they're the only person here they're going to get is me. So yeah. um, I do think that that, you know, that definitely does hopefully at least adds to the experience. Yeah. I think, um, you know, what, what's nice about it is that you never get totally sick of the one task that you're on. Cause there's so many hats to wear. I mean, 
I'm not doing frame building every day, but I think it's similar with my sort of business is that there's, there's always so many hats to wear that you can't get totally sick of doing any one thing in the same way that, you know, if you were a production welder at Moots or something, you might, you might start to get tired of it. Right. It could be exhausting. Sure. Yeah. And yeah, then yeah, another thing is <laughs> I think of it from the outside or from the relative outside, it seems like it's, it's almost like uh like you were talking about this on the poll podcast where when you got started, what was more common for frame building for frame builders was to sell a lot of bikes to bike shops and uh, to build a lot of frames. And now you're doing more complete bikes. Your numbers have gone down in terms of how many you ship every year, but you're doing complete bikes and you're selling more of your own time and your own expertise and more of a relationship with the customer, some more handholding. And I don't mean that in a negative sense, but like um, it's that sort of, customer work uh that that makes it more of a high-end product and, and selling the whole thing so um i i see it as like being a frame builder is like being a boutique brand and you just happen to make it yourself but it's like you have to manage the whole thing in the way that you know if you go to santa cruz bikes or something they i'm sure they have people who work in a marketing department and they have people who work in a design and engineering and prototyping department and they have people who work in uh the factories you know or, or they get them made in asia or whatever it is and so uh but when you're the frame builder you're like all of those departments and you're only one person you know? yeah you got it i mean you absolutely got it yeah but like it is a bike company it's not like you're not just providing the service of like sticking the tubes together it's like you're you're a whole company you know you have a mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it is. It is. It is tricky, you know. And uh, yeah, I don't. Um, you know, at times over the years, I've thought about hiring somebody or, you know, um, something along those lines. And I don't know. I, I guess I've, you know, I've pretty much got to where I am with, with just myself. I mean, I don't do. I don't do. I actually have somebody, thankfully, who I can trust to build the bikes, and then I don't do my own paintwork. Um, but outside of that, you know, I'm the I'm the only one here. Yeah, and by build the so, bikes, you mean assemble the the parts. Yeah. Assemble them exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know, and so, and I mean, and you know, and that's even an interesting one too. I mean, because if you looked around out there at some of these small building, small bike companies, what we'd probably call them. I mean, there are some, you know, some kind of hired gun welder guys that that do the welding for somebody else's bikes and things like that. And I mean, you know, who knows what what is it you know it's always a tricky one because if if you're a welder um you probably say the welding is the most important part of the bike and if you're not a welder you probably say yeah the welding is just something some guy comes in and does in a few hours uh-huh. you know? yeah <laughs> um but at the same time i think it's you know it does it does i mean it, a lot of it gets right back to what we were talking about and then that basically is how do you make this product that makes your customers happy that people are excited about that they want to buy and you know, that they want to enjoy ultimately, right? I mean, we hope that they, they buy these bikes and then they get ridden for years and years to come. Yeah. Yeah. And it gets um, them stoked on yeah. like the idea of, um, the, you know, this nice thing that they bought from a person and the relationship that they got and they're really proud of it. They tell people about it and they want to do it again, you know, when, when the time comes for the next bike or something, you know, that's hopefully mm-hmm. the, the experience that you give somebody is that they, they're just really sure. thrilled about it. And, um, you know, hopefully not, jaded or regretful or <laughs> bad mouthing you know you want to make cheerleaders for your little company that like people are just so happy about the way that it went that they got to tell everybody about how cool it was yeah no i mean that is the you know that is the goal and i think that that's you know that's what we're all striving for i mean you you know we I, behind the scenes talk with builders sometimes you know we've all had 
situations that were less than desirable, but I think you're going to get that in life and in just about any business. But yeah. I think overall, if you're, you know, if you're doing a good job, then all those bikes that you make also kind of do serve as, uh, you know, they serve as, as almost as advertisements. And, and you know, if, the, if somebody runs into somebody who's riding one, um, you know, they can, you're going to really hope that they have great things to say about it. So, yeah. Yeah. I think Carl Strong was saying, I don't remember the number, something like 30 or 40% of his customers are either returning customers or referrals or something like that. You know, that it's, it mm-hmm. comprises a really big portion of the total sales is, is those people who've had a good experience or, or have heard from someone they know about a good experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely have a lot of that right now as well. And, and it is, I mean, my, I, I've got two thoughts about that. One is that it's great because it gives me bikes to build. Um, the other side of it for me a little bit is like, okay, so where are these new people, you know, getting into, <laughs> into buying bikes? I mean, you know, we're, we're, we've got, you know, the, whatever the, this group of folks that, you know, that are, that are lifetime cyclists or whatever, and they're buying bikes and that's great. They, you know, whatever, they're getting older, we're all getting older. Um, but it's kind of like now, where's the, you know, is the next, you know, are the next generations, um, you know, what are their interests in, in things like this? You know, do they want to have, you know, good customer interactions or do they care about, you know, talking yeah. to people anymore? So, um, so yeah, definitely definitely some interesting interesting challenging and i do think that's you know i think the bike industry as a whole is is kind of wrestling with that so Mm -hmm. yeah i mean bike shops especially you know that whole business model is so threatened by um what is it like uh chain reaction cycles in jensen usa Mm -hmm. and these different supply houses and there was that one out of europe for a while that was selling a shimano group set for for like less (laughs) than what bike shops could buy it through their shimano dealers and um, absolutely yeah yeah so it's i mean that's that's tough and um and then similarly um you know you have just like sort of the amazon.comification of everything where you know you can sure. have these impersonal impersonal uh transactions with with big companies and it's provided in a way that's very painless and very like um very refined process for buying at scale but it's not personal and mm-hmm you know, what that suggests about small business then is, is, uh, yeah, troubling. And, and so, I I mean, I think part of what that says is that you need to really, uh, you know, find ways that you can provide value in spite of that, because just showing up doesn't necessarily provide that much value. But if you're, if you're the antithesis of, of these big companies and you sell yourself on that, maybe that becomes remarkable or, or maybe it's just that uh, you're more nimble and you're newer than uh, these other companies. You're more lean, and so you can more quickly adapt to trends and you know whatever it is. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's. Uh, I mean, lots of you know, lots of big kind of interesting questions for sure. That um, um, you know, yeah, it's uh, it's tricky. <laughs> no two ways about it. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, um, I think that exhausts the list of questions that I had. Well, I mean, actually, I had a list okay. of questions, and then I listened to the podcast that you did uh, um, <laughs> for the poll, and I realized a lot of them were the same. And so this was more conversational, which I think works out awesome. I thought it was a good conversation. Um, but uh, I think that good. wraps up what, what I needed to cover, and I know you need to get going. So uh, let's uh, okay. wrap it up here. And no um, I really appreciate the time uh, that you made for the call. Yeah, definitely. And if there's anything else we need to add or whatever, just give me a holler. Cool. Thanks. All right. Awesome. Have a great time at the Philly show. Yeah. Yeah, I will. See ya. Uh, All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.